Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Now, I usually preach till noon, and that clock says 1027. <laughs> so we're good. We're good. Colossians 4, 2 through 6 is our focus this morning. These are the last verses in the body of the epistle that we've been studying for several weeks now, several months actually. Uh, so really, these verses contain the last exhortation that Paul would give the people. Now, we will spend two weeks studying the final greetings, uh, because Colossians has a long list of people that Paul addresses with particular traits about them, and I don't want to just breeze by that. So we'll still have two more weeks to study this great epistle, but as for the body of the letter, uh, the gist of the message, it comes down to these verses in many ways, and there are basically uh, simple ways in which we can live out, that is, walk the talk that has gone before. Uh, there is no epistle quite like Colossians. Ephesians would be the closest. It's, it's twin epistle. Uh, but there's something about Colossians that is particular to the Colossian people that it was originally written to that focuses on the supremacy of Christ. Certainly, the Bible is about the supremacy of Christ. But if you were to pick one succinct book that really just over and over and over in a simple way shows that Christ is supreme and Christ is our life, Colossians would be the book. And so we come now to the last verses of the body of the letter, Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Here as I read God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you've given us your word. You have not left us to wander aimlessly, but rather have clearly given us direction for life. Lord, as we come to the, the end of this great epistle, this wonderful letter, I pray that we would see... Uh, the extreme relevance of these three exhortations the Apostle makes, that you make, using the Apostle. Pray, Father, that they would become real in our lives, that we would not uh, just focus on all the talk, but rather we would walk then accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I particularly enjoy getting periodicals. My favorites are actually from the schools that I attended. Moody Bible Institute and then uh, Covenant Seminary, and every quarter we get a Moody Alumni Magazine. And the reason why I like it and I read it with such anticipation is that I have a personal connection with many of the, the people who write articles in that, in that uh, magazine, but also it has updates from fellow students, and we can see how they're doing as they grow, and uh, their families get bigger, their ministries expand, their lives change, and you get to see those updates. And so with great anticipation, when I get that letter, if you will, in the mail, I check it out and look at it with great vigor. Also, Covenant sends one every other month, and similarly, professors that I sat under uh, will write articles, and I really enjoy reading them because in my mind, I, I have a bit of knowledge about that person's thought process, their discipleship, their maturity in Christ, and why they would write this particular letter. It's very personal to me when I read it. Similarly, today, you know, you can go on the internet, and you can read a person's blog. Blog. Whoever made that name up? I don't know. A blog. I blog now. I have one that I put on every other day. I'll try to put a note about something the Lord is uh, uh, speaking to me about or just something funny to laugh at or just something that's about me. And there are other people that I like to read. 
in one in particular, I just read this week, John Piper did a great, great entry in his blog, which is like an open diary, about his experience sitting by his father's bedside as his father passed on to glory. What a beautiful uh, entry this is. And I read it with great anticipation because this is a person I look up to and I think much of his teaching and much of his discipleship process and what he's doing in the church. And then to read this personal, this personal note gives me great encouragement also. Now I want us to take that, if you can capture what I just said, and apply it to the way it was in the first century when a church would receive a book. I'm afraid for most of us, myself included, I have many versions, many copies of the Bible with all the various letters in them. And we sometimes lose the great anticipation that we should come to the word with. Especially as we come to the end of an epistle. Uh, how would the apostle summarize everything that he's been saying in this letter in just a few verses? I want you to think about that church. That church is made up of some new believers. There was a, a Jewish population that become, uh, many had become Christians. But it was widely still pagan. It was still Greek. And so you have this... Uh, kind of this church developing in homes and then in larger places. And Epaphras comes, the one who was led to the Lord by Paul, with this letter from Paul who is in prison. And he has this new letter on this parchment, and he's going to read it to the congregation. And with great anticipation, the word gets out, another letter from Paul has come. Maybe they had copies of some of the other letters. We know some other epistles were written before Colossians. Maybe they had copies or had them circulate through their church. But now this one is to them. And it's going to start there. Now, Paul gives instruction later to read it to all the churches. That's why we have it today. Uh, but that church, with great anticipation, opens up Colossians. It's so much is made new to them. Christ is my life, the text says. All that I do, I'm supposed to do for Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. Everything is about Christ. This makes sense in light of everything the Old Testament has said and what the Jewish people have been telling us. Now I see how it comes into its fulfillment with Christ. And this letter is for me. What are the last words that Paul says? In this important letter that's as important for us today, we have them before us. And he gives basically a final exhortation in light of our new life, our new identity in Christ. He tells us, if I could put it all together for you, I would tell you, brothers and sisters, to continue in prayer. Walk in wisdom and speak with grace. Think about it. Continue in prayer, dependent upon the Lord. Walking, how you live out everything you know to believe. Walk in wisdom and then speak with grace, graciously prayer, our walk, and our speech. That's the best way, in a simple way, to put it all together. How to live out our identity in Christ given to us here in just these simple exhortations that Paul concludes the body of his letter with. Let's consider each of them. First, he tells us, continue in prayer, verses 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. You can see there that we are to continue steadfastly in prayer and that this prayer is, is described in four different ways. It's a faithful prayer. It's a watchful prayer. It's a thankful prayer. And it's also a purposeful prayer. Let's look at these components together. First, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And that literally means regularly. Uh, pray in a disciplined way. Be persistent in your prayer. That's faithful prayer. Regular prayer that you can count on. It's important for us to have regular times of prayer because this is that sort of glue that holds our walk together as we walk and it helps us grow as we're communicating with God. In many ways, we ask God for things, but we also cry out to God. We also uh, say things to the Lord that we don't understand or 
praise him for the things he has done. We thank him. So many ways in which we offer prayers. And we are to do so in a faithful, continual way. I think of the Lord Jesus himself, our ultimate example, uh, as he gets up early in the morning and prays. And he consistently refers to his father in all the times of his life in prayer. He goes to his father. He cries out to heaven. He speaks to his father. But also think of some of those regular folk also in the Bible who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are given to regular faithful prayer also. David says in Psalm 55, I call to God and the Lord will save me evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and he hears. I point this out because he seems to have specific times in which he prays. We all know to pray. I mean, that's no heroic pastor telling you that. But do you recognize there are particular times we should pray? David shows us this. But also Daniel, in the midst of this pagan nation, really at risk of his own life, gets on his knees three times a day in praise, it tells us in Daniel 6. Three times a day. Anna, that godly woman in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Faithful prayer means regular prayer, even scheduled to some degree. Now, before we get all freaked out about the roteness of it, let's all admit we already probably do pray regularly, right? I hope most of us have the habit of praying before we eat. So for most, that's three. It could be five or seven times in a day. But at least we have those regular times. Hopefully, get up in the morning, put your feet on the floor, you offer a prayer to the Lord. We're not talking about a long, extended prayer, just talking to the Lord about the day. Hopefully, before you go to bed, if you've been following some of the encouragements I've been giving you, you pray with your family before you go to bed, or your spouse, your children. And so you have, right there, five different times a day, you probably already have scheduled times of prayer. My encouragement to you, based on this and what comes after, is that the prayers just be more engaged. They don't have to be longer necessarily, but just engaged in who you're talking with. So when we thank God for the food, we really pause and think about the gift it is to have this food. I had a professor in college who used to always say uh, that he would pray that God would protect him from the food he was about to eat. But it did make him think about what he was doing and that it was given by the hand of God, and so he prayed. And I often think to myself, if Muslims who worship a false god can pray four to five times a day regularly... Why on earth would not Christians who have access to the real God through Christ pray in a regular way? Faithful prayer is what we're called to. We see it here just in the opening words of uh, verse 2. Also, watchful prayer, though, continues steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. And being watchful means keeping alert to what you ought to be praying for. Uh, It means to be engaged in prayer, not just floating through it with your mind attached. It means to be spiritually keen when praying. In fact, this very verse argues against the concept of the monastery in the Middle Ages when they get away to pray. Well, how do you pray if you're not watching what's happening to know what to pray for? Uh, that's part. Prayer is not detaching completely. It's going to prayer in solace to some degree, but with a mind connected to what's going on out there so you can pray for it. That's what watchful prayer is. It's sort of like Jesus is telling us, his disciples... I'm going here to pray, now you keep watch. Remember when he said that in Gethsemane? Literally, he said, watch and pray. Be watchful and pray, Jesus says to the disciples, that you may not enter into temptation. Be careful, even in prayer. Be watchful, alert, spiritually. The spirit is indeed willing, Jesus said to his disciples in Gethsemane, but the flesh is weak. It's a warning to us to continue steadfastly, faithfully, but be watchful in it. Pray, I would say, first in accord in accordance with God's word. Uh, One of the best ways you could be a watchful prayer is to know that what you're praying for is in accord with his word. 
but also pray with a knowledge of what's happening in people's lives. One of the great blessings for me personally is when uh, folks take time to fill out the prayer request, and so I have a way to, and Nathan and Brian have a way in which to pray for you that's specific. It's not just uh, general generalities, which I enjoy praying for you concerning, but it's better when I have specifics because I can be more watchful in my prayers for you. I would say that's true for all of us. In fact, that's one of the great blessings of being part of your home fellowship group. You share requests that can't be shared in a larger group, and you can continue to pray in a watchful way for one another. Sunday night, we have just an open time. Anyone can ask for prayer and anything they want, and then we all hear and we can continue to pray for you throughout the week. Watchful prayer means informed prayer, alert prayer. It means that we are knowledgeable about the things that we pray for. Thankful prayer also, though. Notice how Paul here, again, in usual Pauline form, attaches thanksgiving to the end of this continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul loves to exhort us, prompting us to thankfulness. And thankfulness, quite frankly, uh, works in a person effectiveness for kingdom advance. When a person is thankful, they can go a long way because thankfulness is an acknowledgement that God is our sovereign father and that we are thankful for everything because it's by his will and through his hand and it puts us in a mode of humility. So we humbly receive the things that we receive and when we pray, we do so with thanksgiving. God, that you even hear us. I'm so thankful, Lord. Just a bit earlier in the same book, you remember when we studied Colossians 3, 15 through 17, some well-known verses. Hear those verses again. Just listen to those verses again and realize how Paul thinks thankfulness. And I say Paul by the Holy Spirit, says this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17 of chapter 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times in this important passage in Colossians 3, thankfulness. And now as we are called to pray steadfastly, watchfully, thankfully as well. Uh, why should we be thankful in our prayers? Well, first of all, and very simply, we get to talk to God. That, if there's nothing else, we get to talk to God because of Christ. We can come into his throne room and talk to our Father, and he never casts us out. One of the vivid pictures in Scripture uh, that gives you this anxiety that one might feel approaching someone who is wholly other happens when Esther is supposed to go into the throne room. It's her husband, and she's scared to death, literally, that he might not accept her because if you're not invited, uh, he didn't like that much, and he had a history of uh, doing nasty things to people who came in uninvited, wives included. And so here she is on behalf of God's people going to go in, and she's scared to death. And she walks in, and she's in trepidation, wondering what's going to happen. And then the king offers his staff, which simply means that he receives her into his presence. Well, that picture has nothing to do with what the believer's relationship is to God. We never, ever have to enter his throne room with trepidation. We do so with reverence because he's our great God and Father, but we do so with a boldness approaching the throne of grace because of all that Christ has purchased for us. And so we can be thankful in all our prayers because when we pray, it's not bouncing off the ceiling. God is listening. That's why we're thankful. Just on the most basic level, God accepts our prayers. Now, this general encouragement to pray can sometimes just be relegated to ourselves, our families, our church. But what comes in verses 3 through 4, 3 and 4, shows us this is a wider focus for prayer also. 
We continue in prayer faithfully, watchfully, thankfully, but purposefully too. Look at verse 3 and then verse 4. At the same time, Paul says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ an account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Our prayers can sometimes become too general. We have to keep in mind as we pray for all the things that are important to pray for, keep in mind the general mission of the church. And in particular, pray for those people who have specific opportunity to speak the mystery of Christ where they are. We all have that opportunity. Paul's saying here, we're going to go out and about and we're going to be sharing the message. Please pray that God would open the door so that the message can be spoken and heard and that we do so clearly. This gives us great insight. Not only are our prayers to be purposeful, it gives us a little indication about the method God requires of the church to spread the gospel. Notice he doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, pray for us that God may give us many conversions, many decisions, that many cards would be filled out, that many hands would be raised and eyes would be closed and heads would be bowed. It says nothing of that nature, does it? It says that the door would be open for the proclamation of the word. That's missions. The opening of the door, God has to open it. He gives us the word. He opens the door for the word. He gives efficacy to the word. It leaves none of us proud of our missionary endeavors. Instead, it puts the focus in the right place, the sovereign action of God, and our prayer is, Lord, would you please open the door so that the word, the word that's saved by the ministry of the Holy Spirit would go forward. That's what I pray for. In fact, specifically, brothers and sisters, as we think of sending off uh, some of our own from our own congregation, my prayer for Woody and his team and for the Juarez team is not that they get a bunch of conversions and that a bunch of people pat them on the back, but that God would open the door for the word to go forward. That's the prayer for missions. That's the prayer starting right here in our own congregation. In fact, my prayer for you is, uh, that as you're in your office or that you're in your neighborhood talking to your neighbor, that God would open the door for the word so that you can do what? Declare the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? That God would send salvation for our sins, forgiveness for our sins, and then give us Christ's righteousness. That's the mystery. That you can declare that wherever you are. That God would open the door for this. This is a prayer that Paul asks for. And this is a purposeful, kingdom-advancing, God-focused prayer. Lord, give me a chance to share Christ today, the mystery of Christ. Open the door for the word. That's what I need. Not more uh, cleverness, Lord, not more ingenuity, not more new ways to tell this or do that, but rather, Lord, open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Prayer. The first thing out of these last, out of these last three exhortations that Paul focuses upon prayer. I, we spend a lot of time talking about prayer. There is much misconception about prayer. Most Christians believe it's kind of like a lever, or they believe like Frank Peretti's novels that if you don't pray, then God won't somehow overcome the demonic spirits, or that God's somehow handcuffed according to whether or not the people of God pray. I hope we dismiss that erroneous type thinking. That is not our God. Instead, what we have is this all-sovereign, powerful God who gives us the means of prayer that he has used to ordain things to come to pass. And so our prayers then are more to align our wills with his will, and we keep doing it until our will's in line with his. We never stop until our will's in line with his. It means we either change the prayer or the prayer was in line with his will, and it happens. D.L. Moody, who was not a theologian, I'll tell you that, he was a shoe salesman, and his own theology kind of reflected what I just described on prayer. But the man was passionate for Christ, and he, he presented Christ in many ways, and many people came to Christ through his ministry. Uh, he went to England on an evangelistic crusade, 
and he went to Scotland for a time, and he did not know, he admits later, that he did not know the spiritual heritage of Scotland. Now, some of you here ought to know, because it's our heritage, it's the Presbyterian heritage, and they were real staunch on the sovereignty of God and understanding what prayer's proper place was. Well, Moody didn't know this, and so he's in a school. Another thing he didn't know is at that time, the schools were basically Christian because of John Knox's influence at that time in the, in the mid-1800s. And so Moody went into the schoolroom thinking he had more or less unbelievers to preach the gospel to. And so he said, do you boys and girls know what prayer is? And a little boy, less than 10 years old, raises his hand and says, prayer is the offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of sins and the thankful acknowledgement of his mercies, question 98 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. <laughs> Moody stopped, and Moody was good at this. He said, son, be thankful you were born in Scotland. <laughs> but I would hope as we raise as a congregation that there'd be a day somehow that God would open the door for the word and that someone would say, son, be thankful you were born in a day when the word went forth clearly and you understood this thing. Prayer is the first thing the apostle calls us to, to walk the talk that he's been speaking of in this epistle. Secondly, walk in wisdom. Just one verse, conduct yourselves, verse 5, wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. This parallels almost exactly Ephesians 5, which I'll refer to in a moment, but it first says wisdom towards outsiders. That is, uh, live wisely towards those who are outside of the church. That means they're outside of Christ at this point. Uh, given the historical context, that is, Colossae and this uh, minority of Christians, we can understand this to mean that by conducting yourselves wisely, you will draw people to Christ. We could surmise that historically, but Literarily, you can see just two verses before, Paul's asking for God to open the door for the word in order to declare Christ. So we can say that with certainty that by conducting ourselves wisely towards outsiders, people will see Christ and come to Christ. That's the point that is being here exhorted. In fact, one of my favorite passages that talks about our influence as believers comes in 1 Peter 3 when talking to wives who find themselves married to those who are not believers. And listen to what uh, is told to such women in this case. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Notice what it says, so that even if some do not obey the word, that is their husbands, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their, of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So we see clearly in that passage that it's quite possible for someone to live in such a way is that to win people over. Now, it doesn't give the full story. Clearly, they have to understand, based on God's giving understanding, of Christ for their sins. But recognize that your conduct alone goes a long way to spreading and sharing Christ with others. Walking in wisdom means first walking wisely with others. This is why Jesus says in John 13, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By your conduct, by the way you act towards one another, act wisely towards those who are outside. John 17, praying for the church to come after the disciples. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus consistently connects our creedal statement with our life, our orthodoxy with our orthopraxy. They always go together. 
This is the way God helps us to walk wisely before, other, for those, who, before those who are on the outside so that they might come on to the inside. George Hammond, a 17th century Puritan, preached on this very text, and he said this, Christian graces, which is another way of saying uh, Christian living, being so exercised that they may be seen in their proper luster, are excellent orators and have a mighty power to persuade. Our actions speak at least as loud as words. Another commentator on this passage says wonderfully, the wonderful graces of bearing with one another and forgiving each other, of letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, of letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you, and doing all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's summarizing Colossians. These provide the framework for daily life. They preach a sermon without a word. Yet in so preaching, it opens the door for words. Speak encouraging words whenever you have the opportunity, especially when interacting with those outside of Christ. I think one great way we can all do well in this, especially in the workplace, has to do with simply modeling submission before those we work with. It's become in vogue to just talk down about those who are in positions of authority, how they're not qualified or they shouldn't be there. And I can't believe that person's our, our superior, our manager, our boss. I would say to you that a believer should have no part in those discussions. We are to model before those who are on the outside, one who submits to authority, regardless of whether the authority is someone we agree entirely with. This is a major way in which, in a very simple way, in which we can show Christ in our actions. Don't engage in that unwholesome speech that's so easy to jump into. Look for opportunities to serve others. And you're in your neighborhood, and the spring weather starts, and all of a sudden it's like everybody's been hiding inside. And like in the next two weeks, everybody will be outside, right? Kids will be riding their bikes around. People will be interacting. You'll have interaction after three months of not seeing your neighbor. You'll see that, you know, their hair is longer or something's different about them. And when you talk to them, don't engage in neighborhood gossip that talks about what that weird family's doing over there. Because if they're engaging with that discussion about that family over there, guess what they're saying about you when you're inside your house? Stop that discussion by not engaging in it. Have encouragement to, say, to speak to those who are on the outside of Christ so that they might come to Christ. There was a guy that went to our church five years ago. Some of you know him. I loved his model of sharing Christ, of walking in wisdom before those who are on the outside, so to speak. In his workplace, it was kind of a rough place to work in a lot of ways. Uh, he just made an effort of just serving people. And he wouldn't speak about Christ to them until he had many interactions with them, and then he would speak of him. Uh, but he would go and help them. Uh, he had several families that, that uh, were in great need uh, of, of many physical things. And he would go out of his way to go help paint their house, go fix something for them, whatever he can do, and, and pray that God would open the door for the word to go forth as he did these things. And then I remember one time, and some of you were part of this, there was a, a fire that one worker had in his home and lost everything. And so this brother, who they, they moved 40 miles from here, so they weren't going to our church. They were going to a small church. They couldn't do much to help. And so he called us up and said, could Redeemer uh, get together a collection so we can give to this family? And he did this all quietly. The family didn't know what was happening. And you guys all responded. And we were able to give them tons of stuff. And they were just utterly blown away that some church they didn't know gave to them and then on top of that, that this guy, this quiet guy that no one really knew much about, the guy hardly knew him, uh, did all this for him. And it immediately opened up an opportunity to probe spiritually with this man where he was. Did he know Christ? 
And this happened because one individual walked wisely before someone who was on the outside. We're also to walk as good stewards of time. It says in the second part of verse 5, make the best use of time. This parallels Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 perfectly when it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Bottom line, the time we have in this life is extremely short extremely short, maybe shorter than you even think right now. Redeeming the time means to make the most of the time we have. You know, God gives us so many great things. He gives us so many, so many things, stuff uh, to enjoy and to use. And he also gives us abilities. Every one of you has some special stewardship of talents that God's given you. And he also gives us the thing we overlook the most, time in which to use those things. So time itself, just like the things he gives into your care, are, is a stewardship to be used for him. It, you know, part of that is to be used in recreation, so you're refreshing oneself. It's not to say that if it's not done at church, it doesn't count. I don't mean that. I just mean to say that let's do a, a serious analysis of how we're walking wisely with regard to the use of our time. I know personally I can get on the Internet and two hours can go by before I even knew what happened. A television show can take you over like that. Uh, all the new technologies that are incredible, you can have your headphones on, and before you know it, you've listened to three albums and not talked to anybody. Any one of those things wrong on their own? No, you know they're not, brothers and sisters. That's not what I'm saying. But being honest about evaluating the time we have, that's what this is a call to. And I say no matter what stage of life you're in, I think it's true, very generally, that it's almost always better, especially when you're home, to spend whatever time you're going to spend isolated with your family and with your children. Because that's time they will never forget. And you only have once. And for those that, where the children are out of the house now, analyze seriously. The same way you would sit down and analyze your finances and your budget and see where things are going. Sit down and look at your time and say, where is it going? How is it being used and offered unto God? I'm at a stage in life where I have my health. I have energies. I don't have some of the same things binding me as some of the younger families. What can be done for the kingdom with this stewardship? These are great questions to ask ourselves, and I think they go right in line with being good stewards of time. Making the best use of time. The best use of time. Continue in prayer. Walk in wisdom. And then finally, verse 6. Speak with grace. Really the last verse in the body of this great epistle before the final greetings. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think that Paul puts this last, at least it speaks to me, because I realize that I can try to do those other two things. If my tongue goes wild, it really serves to offset those other two things I'm striving uh, to do, to pray, to walk. But if I'm spouting off or I'm not thinking and calculating and measuring my words, think of how much damage is done. Think of how much damage the tongue does, the book of James, like a little rudder on a huge ship moving it. Similarly, our tongues can be used for great encouragement. That's what I love about this uh, statement is onlookers are observing Jesus. And all spoke well of him, they say about Jesus. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And what is meant here is, isn't he a regular Jew? Isn't, but we know he's not just regular because he knows as much as the Pharisees. But the Pharisees' general approach is to tell us how we're not in line with everything. But yet Jesus comes to us while maintaining the truth to whoever it is, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, maintaining the truth but speaking graciously to them. Who is this person? Who are these people, should be said, that speak graciously? Let your speech usually be gracious is not what it says. Most of the time be gracious is not what it says. 
but always be gracious. Our words should also be thoughtful and timely. You can see by the second portion of this verse why this is so. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Please notice it doesn't say that your words may be gracious and laced with honey, right? Because in Proverbs, what does that mean? When honey is applied, it means that you're twisting the meaning so that someone is flattered so you can gain advantage. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. What this is saying is season your words, not cover them up with their intent, but season them, calculate how you say them. Uh, the best way I can describe this is, you would imagine, connects with pasta. And you see, my children are well-averse in pasta already in their young life. Now, if you ask them what mommy's kind is, they will say macaroni and cheese. That's pasta, okay? Macaroni and cheese, that's mommy's kind in our house. Daddy's kind, on the other hand, when they ask for it, is penne pasta with a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of butter mixed in with basil, with a little bit of oregano and parmigiana mixed in there good, and that's daddy's kind. Now, when I give them each their portion, all three of my boys like differing levels of salt applied. AJ didn't like much. He thinks the Parmesan has enough saltiness in it. Nickel likes a little more. Jordan, kind of whatever the last one who I applied it to, that's the one he likes. Now, my point to you is, is that I'm seasoning their plates, and I'm doing so on an individual basis, knowing what their tastes are and what is taken to make that dish that much better for them. It doesn't change the dish, just enhances its flavor in a certain particular personal way. When we, oh, I wish, by the way, I could use my words like this, that I would be so calculated as to put it together and then put it before you and then season it with just the right amount of salt. You see, just that process means I don't dig in and eat right away. I pause and I think and I calculate and I measure. Then, based on who you are, I apply this amount. Who you are, I apply this amount. And I'm calculated because every individual person counts. And so we season our words based on individuals. Because God sees us in terms of individuals. We see the masses. I have a hard time as our church grows even seeing you as personally as I used to. But God doesn't look at us as faceless. He sees you personally and we are to act towards one another. Speaking, seasoning our words with salt. We can only do that if we know people. We can only do that if we know the particulars about those people, that we may know how we ought to answer each person. All that they might know Christ. The gist and the crux and the thesis of the whole book, that they would know Christ. Season our words. For some of us, we have to be very calculated and planned, even accountable regarding our words. Uh, I'm finally almost past the stage where I require my wife to kick me under the table if I start talking when I shouldn't. You know, please, if I start saying this, just let me know. Look at me. Give me a look if I'm talking too much. Because that would be my struggle. Some of you just simply need to talk more, especially when it comes to sharing with others about the faith that is in you. But the answer lies in a balance that sees the seasoning, the application of salt to all that we say and speak, so that we can be agents of transformation in this culture for Christ. So these great three simple exhortations summarize really putting uh, the walk to the talk that has gone forth in this book and all the discussion that must have gone on when the church received this great letter. I hope the discussion we have as a church, even these some 2,000 years later. Our prayer life should be different because we're new in Christ. That is continue in prayer. Our walk should be different because we are now in Christ. Walk in wisdom. Our speech should be different now that we are in Christ, bearing a new identity. Speak with grace. Let us pray.
Lord, I thank you for your word and its clarity, and I pray that anything that I would say that is not in accordance with it would fall from the ears of all who are here and listening. I pray, Lord, that we would get a, just gain a new appreciation for the word and the mystery of Christ that has been made uh, clear to us. Uh, we recognize we could not gain clarity if it were not for the Holy Spirit removing the veil from our eyes. Lord, I pray that we would see how all of this comes together in these simple exhortations to continue in prayer and communication with you in a regular, watchful, faithful way, purposefully praying. Lord, at the same time, we conduct ourselves in wisdom with those on the outside, longing to see all men, all women everywhere come to Christ. And Lord, also, Father, that we would just be so moved, so moved by the walk that you've given us, the prayer that we have, that we would become uh, devoted servants in a way that we've never been before. Lord, we desire to see this happen. Lord, thank you for all you have done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's